Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Tom Goodwin. Tom is Head of Futures and Insight at Publicis Group. He's the author of Digital Darwinism, a book all about business disruption and innovation, and there's every chance you might be one of his over 700,000 followers on social media. Tom is a really deep thinker in a variety of areas and a big advocate for challenging conventional wisdom. Tom's based in the US and, as you'll learn later in the conversation, is somewhat nomadic at the moment, so please excuse the slightly crunchier audio quality. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation and I really enjoyed speaking to Tom. I hope you like it and if you do, please hit subscribe and leave a review in your podcast app. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. I just wanted to kick things off uh, the way we always do with every guest by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? I think I want to celebrate empathy. I think um, somehow we're in this strange moment in our lives where the internet's come into it. We've got all this technology and we're being sort of forced apart. I don't think we're doing much thinking so that could be anything from uh, more thoughtful approaches to marketing to more thoughtful approaches to design to a more sort of uh, together society based on a more sort of building of bridges with each other. But empathy is my big thing. And how do people understand or potentially misunderstand what empathy really means then? Um, I'm not sure if it's that people don't understand it. I think it's just more that it hasn't been considered to be that important. I think somehow we've fallen so much in love with technology and we've fallen so much in love with devices that maybe it's just sort of dehumanizing us a little bit. I think um, we tend to have this pace of life where everything has to be very quick and every answer should be quite straightforward and everything should be made to be quite simple. I think we're just sort of losing the uh, the sort of mental fitness that it takes to understand that things are complex and that people have different opinions and that doesn't mean that people are wrong or bad. Um, so I'm just sort of hoping really to to get a bit more sort of humanity out there, I guess. I guess it's a, it's a good time in the world to, to have that hope, as you say. How have you been doing the last sort of few few months and being and being sort of caught up and reading all that news and digesting it? Um, not very well, really. I mean, I think uh, I'm not entirely sure if it's the way that algorithms are constructed. You know, I do have a very firm opinion that there's almost like a threshold that's in the center ground. And whatever you do, sort of algorithms are almost designed to sort of push you towards the edge. I don't mean they're designed to push you towards complete extremism, but we tend to somehow have become very uncomfortable with this idea that we might not understand everything. We've become very uncomfortable with the idea that things might be complicated. Or we've become uncomfortable with the idea that there might be something that has some positivity towards it. And um, I'm not really that sure what's going on. I think um, perhaps we're so used to a sort of immediate um, satiation of a McDonald's meal that we're not really prepared to have a kale salad for our brains. Um, and because it's quite a new thing and because we haven't really seen any um, large scale effects of this, um, we haven't necessarily realized it's a problem. So I, I wouldn't have thought right now there are many courses at university designed around empathy. I wouldn't have thought there are many uh, primary schools that are teaching the importance of this, because I think for a long time we just assumed that we were born with it and it was just there and it was worked out. Um, 
and I, you know, without sort of sounding all trendy and using words like cancel culture, like there are just many aspects to the world around us which seem to show um, that this is a very big problem right now and it's not being addressed. And do you believe then, is it that people are fundamentally wired to try to want to think in a or to want things to be simple or to want to think in a simple way uh and that's been um exaggerated by the way that we now communicate and the technology and stuff or has the has the technology and that change in communication sort of brought about something completely new in the way people tend to behave yeah, I, I definitely don't know the answer to this. So I, I'm not kind of coming on here having written a book about it and having spoken to lots of um, sort of uh, psychologists about it and brain surgeons. Um, it sort of strikes me that we are a species that has developed um, for a world that moved quite slowly and for a world that was quite local and for a world that worked in a physical environment. So if you're in a pub, in a village like you can't really burn bridges with those people around you because you might you know one of them might be your doctor and one of them might be the local ambulance driver and one of them's probably your teacher so i think we've been brought up to be quite tolerant of each other really we've been brought up to find the middle ground we've brought up with news publications whose job it was primarily to report facts and whenever you talk about this you're aware that you know there would have been fake news like Freddie Star ate my hamster and there are some um, pieces of the tabloid press which have always been rather outrageous but I think somehow probably due to the internet and the fact that we don't really have to sort of see people crying on Twitter and we don't have to kind of deal with the consequences of blocking someone I think we've just become very intellectually lazy really and we haven't really wanted to do the the sort of uh, the the heavy lifting of of trying to see things from their perspective, and we haven't really wanted to read articles that make things um, challenge the opinions that we already have. And in particular, there doesn't seem to be many mechanisms to find commonalities. Like the main culture of the internet is one of outrage, and the main currency mm. of news media is clicks. And anyone that knows anything about brain chemistry knows that if you really want to get someone to click on something. You know, you either have to kind of get them sexually aroused or get them angry or get them curious. And, um, you know, that means a headline saying something complicated or something that's explaining enough in a headline um, is never really going to make any money for anyone. Whereas something that is misleading, something which engenders outrage, something that says find out more by clicking here and watching this video to the end. That's how you get made. That's how you make money. Hmm. Where do do you think the news media go from here if we've been through the sort of social media phase of news what's what's next in your view of how that develops i think what i hope will happen um and i'm not sure how confident i am that this will but what i hope will happen is this will be a moment of of reckoning um my hope is that we in all aspects of our lives right now are able to use a little bit of time to understand that we've never really challenged technology. We've never really evaluated our behavior. We've never really questioned what we do. And maybe now there will be this slight sense that perhaps we need to start saying no to technology in some parts of our life. And perhaps we need to accept that things that are free of charge are actually just making money um, from our brain chemistry being biohacked. 
And I think perhaps we will start to realise this is a problem. So perhaps on the on the recognition that the news environment is not helping us, and whether that's people being obsessively angry about Trump, or whether it's people sort of hating each other because of Brexit, or whether it's people celebrating conspiracy theories or wishing that Sweden doesn't do very well. Like we've become rather disgusting people. Um, and I think the more that we can recognize that it's not okay, and the more that we can recognize that um, people are not wired to be horrible and that most people have good intentions and most people have much more in common with each other. I think the moment we start to sort of reprogram ourselves like that, um, we can then figure out business models that help perpetuate that. So we can help figure out a way to pay for news, you know, to train ourselves, mm. to learn, to, to read articles that are more um, thorough. Um, but, you know, this, the kind of empathy I'm talking about is not just a kind of internet problem. I think um, more generally in life, um, you know, there are lots of ideas right now that are put out by startups that are just not particularly sophisticated ideas. There's lots of uh, privileged people being overserved and subsidized by um, cheap kind of borrowing. And there are lots of items that people buy without really thinking about why they're buying them. And I think um, now would be a very, very good time for us to sort of um, retreat back to a bit more thoughtfulness, really. So how can we sort of own slightly fewer things? And how can we spend more quality time with our best friends? And how can we um, sort of enrich ourselves a little bit more? How can we live life with beautifully sort of designed and crafted items? Um, I mean, obviously, my role in advertising is sort of counter to some of this stuff. But I, um, I genuinely believe the power of ideas, the power of imagination, um, the power of making wonderful things that solve problems. These are all things that we've somehow discounted in recent times. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I would really recommend picking up a copy of Tom's book, Digital Darwinism. And if you enjoy books of that ilk, I'd love for you to join the Journey Further book club. This is a growing community of ours, over 1,200 members now. We share bite-sized insight from the best business books, hold virtual meetups for the community and much more. It's completely free to join. Just go to journeyfurther.com or follow the link in the show notes to sign up. Now back to the conversation. So when when you talk about startups with unimaginative ideas or ideas that are just saving serving the same sort of small proportion of of society, how how do you start? A, how do you kick off a process? Start a process or start a business that does have a bigger outlook? What would be your advice to be like? Well, here's a here's a different starting point to go on a better path. Um, I think. Um... Probably what's happened is we've fallen in love with the idea of the startup founder and we've fallen in love with the notion of people getting rich in the IPO and we've fallen in love with the ideas that ideas, uh, we've fallen in love with ideas that get big very quickly and are scalable and have big profit margins. And most of the sort of Silicon Valley business model is really predicated on this idea of user growth, sell to as many people as possible, sell as much stuff as possible, borrow tons of money to fuel all this and then IPO and be incredibly rich. Um, and in that environment, what really gets made is what gets funding and what gets funding is based on things that have been done before. So you tend to sort of have this like, uh, I don't know, almost like a fruit machine approach to innovation where the wheels will spin around and the first thing that comes up will be, you know, um, Instagram. And then the second it will be four and it'll be dogs. And then the third word will be 
you know, urban, and then the fourth word will be um, sound. And then you realize that, you know, you're going to make a social network for dogs that bark and find a music mashup. And you tend to see the world as just hundreds of remarkably stupid companies. So, I mean, I think there are 150 companies that sell mattresses online. I mean, um, you know, and none of them are really particularly successful. Perhaps about four of them have a right to exist. Uh, I think that's just for the US, by the way. Um, and there just seems to be absolutely no imagination. I mean, the, the world around us is full of problems. Like There are people right now who are lonely. There are people right now who are elderly and scared. And there are people right now that have too much food in their fridge. And there are people right now that are stuck in rural environments and can't get to work on time and they've broken their leg. Like the world is just full of these really rich human problems that can probably be solved profitably or uh, make enough money to, to sort of make someone happy. And some for some reason, we've sort of fallen in love with this very um, algorithmic and sort of formulaic approach towards scaling based on reducing the risk that anything remarkable might happen. Obviously, you mentioned your role there in, in the sort of marketing and advertising world, and you you speak about it in your book as the sort of marketing and communications being the sort of outer layers of the outer layers of the of of the onion often seen as the sort of superficial element to a business the thing that's like added on yeah what how how does how does your role in that marketing and advertising space sort of help or hinder you when you're trying to push uh, forward these ideas of braver innovation of more imagination and and bolder business models um i mean there are a couple of things obviously working for an advertising agency that is predicated on buying quite a lot of media and supporting a, a media ecosystem that i criticize um it's quite easy to think that somehow that means i'm sort of disingenuous or, or two-faced or something so there's a bit of a a moral dilemma there, um, which I reconcile by knowing that the future of media is not to um, have an entirely paid model. Like advertising is fundamentally a very useful thing in the world. I just think that we need to rethink some of these business models. So perhaps people pay a subscription um, and perhaps there are very few advertising placements. And because of the scarcity value, those ads are therefore worth a lot more money. And because they're worth a lot more money, we can spend a lot more time thinking about great ads to make there. And then we can mm. make wonderful, empathetic, innovative, thoughtful, kind, um, generous, spirited, sort of enticing advertising. And then you start to realize how the whole system can work. Um, the other thing I struggle with is that one has to be aware of the gulf between um, a sort of idealistic notion that um, understanding people and understanding design and understanding consumer insights, you know, shouldn't just be used at the end of a process, but should be used as an input into it. So, um, you know, it'd be much better to create a car which is meaningfully different because you understand that people, um, crazy, I know, use phones in cars. So how do you create a, a, a car that has a beautiful holder for the phone in place? Or how do you find a way for it to integrate properly with the rest of the car's operating system you know, so that you get the the sort of benefit of the two things working together. I'd much rather see things like that produce better cars than I would use customer insights to just make an ad that looks beautiful because of aesthetics. Right. Yeah. And what what does the sort of future of the sort of digital media agency or consultancy look like to you? Then what uh, things are moving so fast in terms of how these companies interact with their clients? What what what's the future? 
for those types of businesses? Um, I don't really know, to be honest, because um, there's the sort of logical way forward and the sense of um, how things should be. And then there's the kind of reality of, of what life is really like and how changes really happen. And I think um, if there's one thing that I've consistently got wrong over my career, it's to expect that things that are better will happen because they're better. Um, or that there is, you know, that there is um, less resistance to change than there really is. Um, so I could talk quite easily about all sorts of things which would be quite helpful for um, for agencies to do, and all sorts of things which would be helpful for agency client relationships. Um, but to some extent, to talk like that is to be quite naive, really. Um, but to talk more pragmatically about it, it's quite boring. <laughs> I guess on the boring point, I guess like. You, you make quite a good point in your book about uh, innovation isn't fast, uh, it isn't cool, like these big misconceptions about yeah. uh, about about innovation. Uh, I guess where 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 do those where do those come from, and how do you how do you overcome them in a in a in a in a business or an innovation type environment? I mean, I'm I'm very lucky to have a job with the words um, innovation in its title. I think. I think I still have it in my title, so I'm not sure. Actually. Um, <laughs> but it's good that people want it because it means that there is this sense that it's good and there is this sense that it's interesting and it's valuable. But I think people don't really want it in its entirety because real innovation is actually very scrappy. You know, real innovation is someone arguing with their boss. It's someone sort of threatening to leave a company unless something happens. Like real innovation is at the weekend putting together a little prototype you know, using money on your credit card and someone from Upwork or something. Um, what we have at the moment is a kind of sanitized form of that, where innovation is a post-it note session. Um, innovation is a kind of inspirational speaker coming in and talking about Tesla for a bit. Um, innovation is kind of looking at um, away suitcases or Casper bed mattresses um, and kind of saying, you know, how can we be a bit more like this? And how can we put a vinyl laminated posters in the canteen that says, you know, think differently? Um, so I think it, we're, I'm, I'm lucky in that I'm part of a movement to behave in a certain way. But I think it would be useful if we were more aware of the reality of how difficult it can be and how much resistance there is and uh, appreciate the risks that you have to take to really make a difference. Yeah, the thing which, one of the bits which really resonated with me was when you were writing about the sort of paradigm leaps Yeah, and that often everyone is always focused on the sort of incremental improvements, but very few people are looking at like, well, what's the next big, big leap? Yeah. I mean, we tend to get very hampered by the past and... Um, when I am critical, like, it's not that I don't understand why these things happen. Like, I am a human being. I know that people get married and they have kids and they don't want to lose their job and maybe they're tired or they're focusing on other things or there are other things they're trying to do at their job at the same time. So I'm never, I'm, hopefully I don't seem sort of um, overtly um, critical. But yeah, companies are very good at getting better at the same thing. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to management consultants as well, where everything's kind of about saving money. And it's kind of about um, the factory and it's kind of about efficiencies and reduction. Um, and there are very few companies that are particularly future focused. Most of them tend to be kind of iterative devices to do what they've done before a bit better. 
Um, and that's probably down to sort of accountancy or something. But it does seem mm. slightly disappointing. You know, if you're a chain of gyms, why don't you focus less on being a space where people work out and more as a kind of holistic wellness company, which might include, you know, a sort of monthly subscription box to nice food or um, mental wellness coaching or all sorts of weird and wonderful things. If you're a bank, then you can either be someone that's really good at knowing how to um, work with people's money and reducing the cost of serving customers, or you can think, you know, how do we become the gateway to someone's relationship with money and what kind of things can we sell to them and what kind of um, service can we provide to people that's more about um, money as a whole and financial wellness. And I think um, I understand why it is that the case that we tend to uh, do that and we tend to have a core competency. And again, most companies tend to have one. Like it, it seems quite unlikely, but if you actually really think about it, most companies are very good at doing one thing and the thing they're second best at doing is a distant second. So, you know, um, Toyota are probably incredibly good at making cars, um, but extremely bad at making software, one imagines. Um, you know, a company like an airline is extremely good at operating incredibly complicated timetables and dealing with all sorts of logistical engineering problems. But when it comes to, you know, understanding empathy and creativity, they may suffer a bit. But even a, a company like Toyota, in many ways, should have a lot of advantage still over a Tesla, right? It's just that they don't know how to, or they're not set up in a way to capitalize on it. It, it shouldn't be that Tesla could steal a march on the car industry from such experienced, big, global players who've done it for so long. Yeah, I mean, a, a key thing, really, I guess, is there are different time scales to look at. So... You know, there would have been a time when Tesla was an emerging threat um, and they wouldn't have noticed them because companies do a very bad job of knowing their competitors. They tend to presume their competitors are the people who are very close in size to them and that are doing things which are very similar. And actually what you learn from a kind of Uber or Airbnb or Amazon or whatever is that the main threats normally are kind of a long way behind you growing quickly and approaching the need state from a different place you know so it's the likes of a kind of monzo which is going to threaten the hsbc more than a lloyd's bank um so one is to try and make sure that you're looking at these threats a bit more carefully which is a lot easier in retrospect um and then the second thing is when you do realize that they're there like do you try to copy them or do you try to double down on who you are and most companies these days um really sort of focus on copying the people who get talked about a lot at conferences you know so a, a company like a target in the u.s will try to become a really bad amazon rather than becoming like the best target that there is um yeah. and there's a wonderful exercise i think to be done i mean I, I run quite a lot of workshops and this is always one of my favorite things but you basically sort of say look if um if you're t a toyota and uh, you imagine being in a meeting at tesla you know, what sort of things are they saying about us that, that are threatening to them? So maybe it's that you've got an incredible reliability um, sort of reputation. Maybe it's that you've got an incredible like R&D department that knows extraordinary things about windscreen wiper motors. And maybe you've got like an incredible brand that appeals to lots of people and that will never limit your growth. Uh, maybe you have an incredible dealer network, which means that people can get their cars serviced incredibly efficiently. And when you start to think like that, 
and you do it quite a few times, you suddenly see these people's eyes light up because they're like, wait a minute, like mm. there are all sorts of things that we've got every right to do that we kind of forget about because we don't realize how special that. I guess it's like things like, as you say, the customer experience and um, convenience and stuff like that is often what these really successful startups, it's all they're, all they're often doing different is they're actually really prioritizing customer service, for example, is something you mentioned quite a lot. And it's like, that shouldn't be something too hard to get right. But the but the effect is huge. Yeah, I think um, I struggle a bit in life because I don't really think I'm particularly smart, to be perfectly honest. I'm just a normal person with a normal head. Um, and these things seem like spectacularly obvious. You know, like it seems mm. it seems ridiculously obvious to me that my experience, and let's just talk about Toyota because it's consistent, but how I feel about Toyota you know, is not just um, the advertising and it's not just sitting in the car. It's also what happens when you try to um, feed it with oil. And it's what happens when you try to take it to a dealership and it's what happens when you try and sell it. And it what ha- it's what happens when you are sold the car and it's what happens when you research the car. And it's what happens when, you know, after two years of your lease is about to expire, like what do you deal with there? And um, we have all these really shitty, vague words in advertising and experience design is one of them. But there is a process to be done, which is to look through the entire process of being alive as a human being all the way through to buying something maybe six times and just figuring out all the wonderful things that you can do to make that better. Um, mm. One has quite a lot of experience these days from trying to unsubscribe from companies. And um, you know, famously, newspapers are just horrendous if you want to unsubscribe from them because they deliberately make it very difficult because the assumption is if they make it very hard for you to unsubscribe, um, then you're probably not and you're just going to be a lifelong customer. And I think that sort of maths worked quite well maybe 10 years ago because people would just be like, all right, stuff it, I'll, I'll keep it. Um, and then now I think that it's quite likely that um, I will subscribe and unsubscribe to newspapers five or six times in my life. I'm like through through a period where mm. I fall in love with the Washington Post. And if they treat me like shit when I try to un- unsubscribe from them, um, then one, I'm going to tell everyone what a shocking company they are and how difficult they made it. And two, I'm never going to subscribe again. And oddly, if they sent me this beautiful message saying, um, you know, it's been an honor to have you as a customer of ours for, um, 17 months and um, we understand that you all need a break but if you ever want to come back use this discount code um, and if you want to get anyone else to to sort of take your membership over like here's a discount code from them and all of a sudden like you probably end up feeling rather guilty for leaving them at that point you might even resubscribe that second but um these, don't, these things don't seem to be that hard to me to be honest like it's pretty obvious yeah when you get that message and it says you'll be fully unsubscribed in four weeks time <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> and you, you kind of wonder who's yeah which poor soul is sat manually yeah adding people's email addresses and removing them from yeah the <laughs> it's called a swivel um, it's called a swivel chair process by the way so there are there are some systems in companies where there might be um one office and there's a a person who has to sort of operate the unsubscribe system and the resubscribe system. And they basically have to turn their chair around from one computer to the other, remembering the name. Um, and it, it genuinely is a thing that happens, especially within large sort of legacy companies. Interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask you about a nomadic lifestyle. One of the first emails we exchanged, you said, I'm entirely nomadic <laughs> uh, now. So it'll, it'll be hard to know where I'll be in three weeks time when we record this. Um, how long have you been 
living like that and how did you kind of transition to living like that uh i think about four months i mean um it's not quite as romantic as it might sound but i was basically in new york and all this shit was going on um and i was like screw this um and i'm sort of single and i have quite a low cost of living um and you know obviously offices across the publicist group were closed um so i just got in a rental car and sort of started driving towards um the south to see a friend um and then i just realized it was really nice it was really nice to be in the countryside so i, I kind of uh, returned my rental car and sublet out my apartment for the rest of the lease um quite a bit boring it's a bit isn't it um <laughs> and then i took my own no car. i didn't realize it was a recent <laughs> oh, okay yeah yeah sorry um, so i just took my own car um, which I had a puncture before so i couldn't drive it and then just sort of <laughs> left and sort of just went out into the wilds um so yeah it's not a kind of uh it's uh, it's not going to be a short-term thing, but it's also not going to be the future of my life. But it's, it's been very interesting to see some of the limitations that it creates as well as the opportunities. Because a lot of the sort of uh, hype around the, the the new normal and people saying, oh, well, everyone's just going to be fully remote now, distributed uh, ways of working, like this is just clearly the, the default um, um, way of going forwards. It, it already seems like that's sort of fast sort of ebbing away and people are like, oh, actually, we'll just carry on <laughs> large, largely how we were before. I think, um, I mean, linking it to my theme of empathy, it's it's amazing how few people really seem to understand what, what life is actually like. You know, like um, I've done summer jobs in chicken factories and I've done summer jobs digging up um, concrete floors in old buildings and I've done summer jobs laying out foundation piles. Um, and there aren't that many jobs I've done that you could do remotely. Like we, we're quite unusual mm. people, and we know unusual people. And it's quite a simple exercise in maths to just think, you know, could that really be done remotely? Definitely not. Could that be? Yeah, but culturally, that probably wouldn't work. Um, I think everyone likes writing the kind of big dramatic pieces. Like um, I saw pieces saying, "Oh, is this the end of fashion?" Um, and it, it sort of seemed a bit sort of silly really to just think that these things that have developed for thousands of years to express mm. who we are as people will suddenly disappear uh, there's a lot of false binaries as well where it's like are we all going to work from home and it's like nope like some of us will do that sometimes and often erratically but the number of people who will suddenly vanish into the sticks to work entirely remotely i think is extremely small because apart from else not many people like doing it only that way so we'll probably end up with this beautiful mixture where we'll all wake up in the morning or make a little weekly plan where we figure out, right, you know, let's go to London for Tuesday and Wednesday and I'll stay on a mate's floor and I'll do everything I can in the city then. And maybe I'll do a bit of work on a Monday, on a, on a Saturday morning and I'll just go, and go to my friend's wedding, you know, the Sunday before. And we'll just figure out the best way to do our jobs. And that will involve blending space and time a little bit. It might mean not working from the home. It might mean working from a local pub. Um, it might mean mm. not working from the office, but working from the WeWork that's near the office. Like um, this idea that these things have one or two options is a bit frustrating to me. Mm. I guess that plays into how you, you, as you, as you mentioned, it's that's the simple way to create a headline or a story is to be a hundred percent this and zero percent that. Yeah, I mean the thing is we all have to work around each other. So 
right now, like people have remarkably uniform situations. So there aren't that many people who have kids in school uh, because schools are largely closed. And that means everyone has kids at home. Everyone has an office that's closed. And therefore, we live in this paradigm together where no one's going to doubt that. But the moment, you know, some kids go back to school is the moment when some parents kind of need to take them to school, which is the moment where some people might as well pop into the office, which is the moment where, well, they're in the office, so I should probably show my face, which is the moment where the clients decide to invite you to the office, which is the moment where you should probably prepare in your office. And then all of a sudden, what was this sort of... um, blank sheet of paper like is suddenly this system of constraints and expectations and cultures which are remarkably similar to the past Mm. um i just wanted to ask you a little bit around privacy it's something you touch on in 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 the book um what's your take on the um sort of impact data and ai have on our on our privacy Will, will we have soon sort of forgotten all of our fears about about it i mean there are some things to worry about a lot and there are many many things that we shouldn't really worry about um like realistically um you know let's assume that facebook is a remarkably evil company um and they've done all sorts of things that we should never heard about before um and they know everything about us um and this is a mental experiment, by the way. Let's say they've listened to this entire podcast. Um, they've listened to everything I've ever said. Let's assume they've seen my dreams, for goodness sake. Um, they're probably <sighs> going to use all of that data to try and sell me some hair gel. Um, they're probably going to use all of that data to suggest an Airbnb in North Georgia for next week. Like they're probably going to use it to try and, you know, they'll, they've got the wrong end of the stick and they'll try and sell me like an MBA course. Like they're not going to like phone up the police and sort of demand that um, I'm arrested. They're not going to sort of drag me out of my building for um, dreaming of something. Like I don't think these companies are actually remotely interested in anything whatsoever, apart from selling me more stuff. Now, there's obviously questions to do with what happens if the police um, ask them for things. Um, But generally speaking, we have all these incredible fears that our faces will be sold to people and at this point someone's definitely going to jump in and say well you wouldn't understand because you're white and you're a man and you're heterosexual and it's different if you're from a different place but i genuinely think that um transparency is a good thing for everyone transparency actually helps with discrimination just transparency actually helps with equality like by understanding the precision of a situation and understanding precisely what's going on like, I think that actually leads to a fairer system for all. There are certainly areas where we have to be unbelievably careful. So in the US, if, you know, my health insurance company um, knew how I was behaving, like, that would be a dreadful thing. Um, if the kind of police could have access to everything, then they can obviously pick on people. Um, so there are huge places where we need to put extremely significant guards. But so far, this idea that I should be scared about, you know, YouTube selling me another car I don't really see what the um, problem is. Something else that, that's also part of my solution towards more expensive media. So if if companies right now actually genuinely knew um, that I'm probably going to buy a TV in about six months' time, I imagine I'll go back to New York in six months and I'll probably want a new TV. Like that's pretty useful information for them to have. Um, if the companies knew that my car was literally on its last legs 
um, that's probably quite good information to have. If it knew that I was really happy with my bank account, that I was not remotely interested in changing, that's extremely valuable information. Um, and if you start thinking in that paradigm, and again, it's very naive, but if you start imagining the world that way, you know, you realize how it could be quite helpful for everyone. So you say maybe people would be strangely reassured if they understood who had what data about them and how it was used, even though it might be quite overwhelming. It might be like, oh, yeah, actually, I think um, um, maybe it's not all yeah, the, the, so terrifying. We don't seem to be very good at sophisticated conversations. And I think um, our whole industry has reacted towards privacy by basically kind of leaving the room and then burying its head in the sand. And I think if we were to say to people, um, you know, you face two choices. One is where we know nothing about you and one is where we know everything about you. Um, please pick, and all we're trying to do is this, this, and this. Please pick a, pick a, a sort of a sliding scale from one to the other. Uh, and then when you did that, it would sort of show you the implication. So if you pick, they know nothing about me, then I'll get all sorts of ads for class action lawsuits for mesotheliomia. Um, or erectile dysfunction or something. Um, I'd probably end up thinking, actually, you know, I quite like clothes. Like, show me some clothes. I don't know, show me some planes. I like planes. You know, tell me about some new airlines. Um, I'd probably pick over there, and I think most people probably would. So, Tom, to wrap up, I've got three uh, quickfire questions for you. The first one, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? Um, this is quite hard to do quickly and it's quite hard to say quickly without being, um, sort of challenging, but uh, I mean, I've been very, 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 um, sort of centerish deft for most of my life. I've been the sort of classic sort of guardian reader. Um, and right now I'm getting incredibly frustrated with this sort of Uber woke, um, Uber kind of sort of so sort of liberal, it's almost sort of, um, outrageous in its lack of logic um and incredibly intolerant and again i, I mean i can't stand the word cancel culture but there is, there is an incredibly stupid um totally um hysterical um movement that's around most of the left wing which has made me almost go so mm. centered that probably you know i sometimes listen to fox news and i'm like oh wow they actually had some different opinions on here it wasn't just like people ranting about, you know, how Trump can't spell. So I wouldn't say I'm becoming right wing, but I'm becoming more sympathetic towards um, the sanity that happens when you are not surrounded by a mob of people who seem to be unbelievably group like in their thinking while claiming to sort of have the moral high ground. Um, and even in conversations like Brexit, I, mean, I couldn't be any more anti Brexit, but the way that people were entirely dismissive towards 50% of the population and just assumed they were all stupid and they had nothing um, logical or they had nothing interesting to listen to. Um, you know, I, I found that extremely distasteful, so that would be it. And I guess you're, you're, you kind of see this on both sides of the Atlantic too, right? So it's kind of the, a, double, <laughs> yeah. a, do, a double dose of... I mean, on a, on, a, on a bad day, I get to feel like Trump is my problem as well as Brexit. And on a good day, I get to feel like neither of them are. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, if this wasn't your mission, Tom, you, 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 described, it, you described it better than me, um, around, around empathy, what, what would it be? Um, I'm a huge believer in just the joy of simple objects done well. 
and it obviously sounds quite um sort of highbrow and a bit out of touch but um i'd love i just i love beautiful buildings and beautiful objects and things that are crafted i'd actually quite like to be a builder um you know like in a, in a parallel universe i'm a kind of builder that just chills out and reads books it's probably quite nice so i was going to say architect but you're more hands-on yeah i think um I mean, I don't think I'd be any good. That's part of the problem because <laughs> I have no, I have no attention span and no sort of um, motor skills, really. Um, but this idea of feeling like you've created something, I actually think, um, you know, without mm. being too sort of um, bad philosopher about this, I think maybe we've been so far removed from elements of life and sort of, you know, what it's like to grow our own food or um sort of cook even that um we've sort of lost touch with the simple sort of human things like making stuff and i think there's quite a lot of mm. dissatisfaction maybe in people's lives that come from a sense of sort of pointlessness and futility and then people end up chasing sort of empty likes on instagram because they don't feel very human somehow but there's probably more to explore there mm, interesting um and finally, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be? I mean, hopefully you haven't had this one before, but you probably have because it's so obviously good. But um, Rory Sutherland and Alchemy. We have, actually. Yeah, sorry. No, I mean, I, he's someone you, you you quote in your book and he's, he's someone <laughs> we've done an, an event with and, and, and watched many of, his, many of his talks. Why would it be your recommendation? Because uh, it's an unusual combination of just like understanding people and ideas and the weirdness of us and the magic of imagination and you know we are held to account by numbers and logic and rationale all the time that um i just want to just shout from the roofs like this data is bullshit these predictions are nonsense you can feel that this is a good idea um so he is someone that is the kind of uh, leader of the movement that i'm very proud to belong to uh, I mean, there are other mm. great people because this might be disappointing to say the same thing as other people. Uh, I haven't read the book yet, but Bruce Daisley, um, Eat, Work, Sleep, Repeat. Um, he's just an incredible mm. guy, an incredible writer. Um, I think the work of like Alain de Botton, um, I mean, some people think of it as sort of cheap, sort of lowbrow philosophy, but for me, it sort of hits the nail on the head. And those are the sort of main things jumping out at me right now. Amazing. Cool. Thank you. Um, Tom, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time out. My pleasure. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to the very end. I would love to hear your thoughts on the episode. So please do drop me an email podcast at journeyfurther.com. Tom name checked Bruce Daisley right at the end there, who was actually our very first guest on the podcast. I would really recommend scrolling back through the archives and giving that a listen. We have a new episode every fortnight now, soon to be every week. Uh, so please hit subscribe in your podcast app and you'll be able to stay up to date with all those new guests we have lined up. And finally, the Journey Further Book Club. This is a great opportunity to learn, discover new reads, meet like-minded people. Just head to journeyfurther.com to check it out and sign up for free.